Real quick, before we get started here, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for the support and encouragement you've given me since going live with the podcast last week. I had serious reservations about this project. I'm being super vulnerable here, and the responses I've received have made it really worthwhile. So thank you so much. All right, enough gushing. On with the show. Welcome to episode six of Good Grief, a podcast dedicated to having a real and honest conversation about mourning and loss. Each episode is based on a theme that we'll unpack with expert interviews, novice slice of life anecdotes, and where appropriate, some relevant cultural references. Full disclosure, at the beginning of 2018, I lost my mom to a brief but brutal fight with lung cancer. She was 57. We were incredibly close and I was pretty lost without her. For the most part, this podcast is a journal of my personal experience. Um, I hope that it's helpful for you because it truly has been for me. From what I've learned, this process can be excruciatingly painful alone, but I think if we take some time to share our stories and lend our ears, we can all walk away with some good grief. This week's theme, Facebook. Rushing to the gym in a late summer Los Angeles fever in 2008, in the small window I had between community college classes and my closing shift as a waiter in Beverly Hills, I missed a call from my ex-girlfriend's sister, Erica. She and I were never really friendly. One of those awkward hostility hangovers from our terribly cliche competition over her sister's attention when we were kids. Her calling me was a little unsettling, actually. I hastily checked the voicemails I sped through yellow lights, and her voice sounded thin and small and urgent. She told me to call her immediately. Her sister, Kirsten, was supposed to be back in town from a national tour researching alternative anarchist economies for a project she was working on. We were close. We dated long distance throughout high school, driving 120 miles round trip every weekend to see each other. We broke each other's hearts too many times to count. Growing up, we'd had many firsts together, and there was a part of me that believed that we might have some lasts together as well. We'd made several failed attempts at grown-up relationships, but we couldn't find a way to make the kid gloves fit right again. We'd resigned to move on, and both of us were in pretty serious relationships. She'd been trying to convince me to drive her from Los Angeles to San Francisco for the final stretch of her tour, and I'd assumed that Erica might have wanted to join us for the ride or maybe coordinate a welcome party for her. I thought a callback could wait. Running into the gym, I carelessly left my phone on the seat of my rotted-out Nissan pickup to be stolen moments later. Erica's voice haunted me while I quickly moved from machine to machine, and when I got back to find my cab door open and my stuff scattered like buckshot, my stomach sank. When I got home, I had the novel idea to check MySpace, to see if I could maybe write her a message. I checked Kirsten's page first and saw dozens of posts. Friends and family dumping their condolences and grief onto the internet. She had been found murdered in cold blood on the streets of the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. Her murderer got away, and there was hardly any evidence to go on. The police weren't particularly motivated to solve this case given the state of post-Katrina New Orleans. At that moment, 
Sitting in my apartment, doubled over in tears, reading the posts and refreshing the page, I remember thinking, what a shattering blow this must be to the hubris of technologists, that we have at the same time created the most efficient way to communicate the most information to the most amount of people and the loneliest possible way to receive it. I was gutted. Not sure what to do, I went to work my shift. At some point, my mom and stepdad walked into my restaurant and practically drugged me off the floor. They've been trying to get a hold of me and finally decided just to drive across the city and tell me that I was in shock and I needed to go home. Like many high school sweethearts, our moms were close, bonded by the mutual trauma of watching your babies turn into lovers together. When Kirsten passed, my mom was determined to be there for her mom, Mamie. And until my mom passed nine years later, they communicated regularly. After Kirsten's wake, we sat on plastic folding chairs, sipping on paper Dixie cups in someone's backyard. And while the intention of activities like this is to bring us closer together, it also creates this unique scenario where the strongest through line we all share, the reason why we are standing around this Rubbermaid table covered in Safeway deli trays, that reason is gone. And for most of us, it's the only thing we have to talk about. It makes their absence amplify the way a single note played after seconds of silence is deafening. The average person spends two hours a day on social media platforms. That's five years of your life spent scrolling, liking, creeping, and lolling. That's about five times the amount of time you will spend looking at yourself in the mirror over the course of your life. While not technically included in the DSM-5, social media addiction or dependency has been correlated to a number of psychological problems, including anxiety, depression, loneliness, and ADHD. Real talk. Spend 15 minutes with me and I'll likely have checked my phone three times. I'm not proud. That's just where I'm at, y'all. There's this famous study by Canadian psychologist Bruce K. Alexander about addiction from the 70s. See, up until this experiment, the popular war on drugs perception of drug addiction was that drugs caused drug addiction. That once someone was exposed to an addictive substance, their ability to govern their own will was overrun by the ravenous, insatiable hunger for their next fix. This theory was frequently validated by studies in which rats were placed in an empty cage and given an unlimited supply of opiate-infused water. The rats, predictably, would consume the drug until they overdosed and died. Alexander saw one major flaw in this study. Loneliness. Perhaps the rat's addiction was just as much a product of its isolation as it was a result of the morphine elixir in the corner. He recreated the experiment, but instead of leaving the rat alone in solitary confinement, he built a rat utopia, he called it Rat Park, with fun things to do, foods to eat, and perhaps most importantly, other rats to interact with. The result was that Rat Park rats hardly consumed the morphine-laced water. This led to a more holistic perception of addiction treatment that emphasized the importance of creating strong social bonds and finding purpose and meaning in life. That's super easy, right? Managing a social media addiction is tricky because after a while, the intimacy you experience from online interactions can begin to feel as satisfying as in-person human contact. 
the methadone to the heroin of face-to-face reality. My grandfather's health has been in decline for the last four years. Before my mom passed, she, being the natural-born producer that she was, project-managed their health care. My grandparents in their late 80s and 90s still live on a farm in a rural part of Arkansas, off a dirt road, off a dirt road, with little access to the luxuries of city living. No cell service, no Wi-Fi. In an attempt to keep them on the farm for as long as possible, their wishes, my mom managed a year-round schedule of rotating family members doing short residencies on the farm. When you're there, your days revolve around preparing, eating, and cleaning up after meals for humans as well as chickens and cows and the small army of cats that people dump out in the country and my grandma collects like rare Jordans. When you're not busy with that, there is a running list of chores to do. Clear the path through grandma's garden, cut your grandfather's hair, dig up the 200-year-old, 500-pound rusted backhoe that is now a home to so many little critters. You spend your time providing value for these people, even if it's just making your grandmother laugh by pretending you can lip-read what her cows are saying. You are appreciated and needed in a unique and extraordinary way. As you make the three-hour drive back to Little Rock and your phone lights up with notifications, thumb-scrolling and double-tapping feels embarrassingly petty. You kind of feel like you're leaving Rat Park for a small bottle in the corner by yourself. I remember wondering, could there be a light at the end of your tongue? But I left Ohio then and pretty much forgotten all about you. Coming back to reality was always hard for my mom. Scheduling photo shoots, hustling for new clients, hating Donald Trump. It was uneasy after a week out there. There was always an item or two that didn't get done. She'd call me and immediately start dictating the status of the farm project. How many cats now? Is Grandma lonely? Grandpa wants you to make him fried okra. See, we have an economy of attention. And social media is a fiercely competitive commodity. When it's removed, our appetites are fed by real human interaction, which is so much more potent, but also so much more complicated and time-consuming and messy. One of the last notes that my mom ever wrote to me in the hospital were the words, project manager. She pointed to me, then circled around the room with her finger. She needed to pass on this job to the next producer. We call the grips with in April of 2018, Facebook creator Mark Zuckerberg stood before the U.S. Senate in hopes to make amends for allowing groups like Cambridge Analytica to manipulate the platform in a way that could have greatly impacted the 2016 presidential election. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from the Zuckerberg hearings were how little foresight he'd had when he first invented the platform in his dorm room 14 years earlier as a way to rate co-eds based on their physical attractiveness. Here's a pretty good example. In 2009, Facebook had to solve the rapidly increasing problem of how to manage the accounts of its deceased users. Facebook's friends' suggestions would recommend that you connect with a deceased person's account. Or worse, people would troll accounts writing insensitive jokes without any sort of admin to pull in the reins. In response, Facebook introduced memorialized accounts. These are digital tombstones. They don't appear in ads, birthday reminders, or as suggestions for people you may know. If you'd like a memorialized account when you pass, you can add a legacy contact to your information, and this person will be in charge of managing the basics of the page, but will not have access to any sensitive information like your personal messages. Here's why this is important. 
It's estimated that 10,000 Facebook users die every day. Currently, of Facebook's 2.3 billion users, 30 million of those accounts are of deceased people. And by some estimates, the number of dead Facebook accounts will outnumber the living as soon as 2065. Emotionally, making my mom's death Facebook official was not as simple as toggling a digital switch into the ether. In the ICU, your world becomes very small. Every little thing you do feels like it could shatter the delicate harmony of cables and cords, the rise and fall of the respirator, the beeping of machines, the cadence that dictates a symphony of survival. Your entire life happens in this little cubby around a bed in some high-rise building in Glendale. The very few people that the hospital will allow into the room with you, they're your fellow citizens. You make decisions for each other, you tell each other when to eat and who can sleep. When it ends and you leave the hospital for the last time, not to get coffee or another pad of paper for your mom to write notes to you on, when it's over, everything feels uncomfortably still, like walking on land with sea legs after a long trip away. It feels like you've just left Fight Club. Like the volume is turned down on everything else in your life. What you just experienced was beautifully and traumatically intimate. No one was looking at their phones in the hospital because the crude dopamine rush that you experience when your social media identity is validated is pretty vapid when pitted against the social bonds that you shared with your comrades in there. Now, inevitably, you have to post something. It sucks, but it's the reality of the world that we live in. And herein lives the paradox of our age. The paradox of this podcast, actually. See, Facebook's algorithm favors frenzy and tragedy. It rewards posts that keep you on the platform. Each interaction, a new data point validating its relevance. This post, it will be... One you'd rather not be reminded of. It will hurt to look at the image of you two together. It will feel impossibly recent and distant at the same time. Your post will start to trend, outperforming most of the content on your friends' feeds. Its velocity aided by every like and comment from estranged lovers or high school cross-country teammates. Technically, this will be your most successful post of all time. It will do what you'd hope that picture of you at Machu Picchu would do. Its magnetism will attract attention from every corner of your network. Unlike the act of talking to a person, which seems to make everything more real, putting it on social media actually makes it distant and impersonal. You become a spectator to the momentum of this weird event. You get mentioned in posts from strangers as they co-opt your tragedy for their own high-performing status updates. Alternately, your small cohort of hospital confidants will become absorbed by the digital buzz. You may just want to turn your notifications off for a few days. Before I posted anything, there were a number of people I needed to call. This is tricky, because there are inevitably people you will forget. People who will feel slighted by the fact that they found out on Facebook. A quick note here, you're gonna forget to call people, they might get offended, they might get hurt, but that's not on you. This is an air mask on an airplane scenario. You have to take care of yourself first. Call who you want to, post when you need to, be selfish for once in your life, and just don't feel bad about it. 
One of the people who got the call was Mamie, Kirsten's mom. To be honest, calling her was as much about wanting to connect with someone who I thought would understand loss as it was about preventing her from finding out the same way I found out about Kirsten. She had no idea my mom was sick. Most people didn't, but she wasn't exactly shocked to hear from me. It turns out that after nearly 10 years of searching, someone had come forward and confessed to the murder of her daughter. She thought that perhaps I was calling because it had already leaked on Facebook somewhere. This has been episode six of Good Grief. Thank you for listening. I just want to mention that while the strategies for coping with grief that I talk about in this podcast have worked for me, I'm not a trained professional, just a guy with a liberal arts degree who watches a lot of YouTube. If you or someone you know is going through a hard time, please do not hesitate to seek the help of a doctor or a clinician. If you like this podcast, please rate it, subscribe, and share with your podcasty friends. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or you just want to reach out, you need somebody to talk to, um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Blake of Today, or just shoot me an email at blakeofToday at gmail.com. Also, if you want to go deeper, um, I've decided to post all of the transcripts from these episodes on Medium. So just go to Medium and search for Blake of Today. And you will find uh, all of the words from these podcasts as well as a bunch of images to support the stories. This week, I want to leave you with a line from Aesop Rock's Get Out the Car Ace, an ode to his friend Camus Tao, who passed away at 31 after two-year battle with lung cancer. It's been a bit since Mu died. It's been a lot more lost in the wake. I recall thinking someday someone's going to say, it's all from the same cause and effect, and I just couldn't fathom blaming a whole new page on this made-up chain reaction. Take care of yourselves. Blaming a whole new page on a made-up chain reaction. Each claim individual peaks and pockets. Pains in a slip of unique nuances. Not me. When you wake up eight years non-responsive, it's a lot to process. Gone from a happier jack-in-the-box to a package of clogged-up chakras. Oh, shot spot, nothing ever after. Rewinded from the once upon a time, dot, dot, dot. Once upon a time, he was so much more than a punchline for his own pot shots. I watched the impossible kid. Everything that he touched turns promptly to shit. If I zoom on out, I can finally admit it's all been a blur since Moo got sick. None of the subsequent years stood a chance.